Hello, this is Dr. Jason Horlack, and today we'll be mapping probiotics on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on how to use the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'm pleased to be speaking with one of my very own teachers along the way, Dr. Jason Horlack. Dr. Horlack is a research scientist, educator, naturopath, and Western herbalist with nearly 20 years clinical experience. He did his PhD examining the capacity of probiotics, prebiotics, and herbal medicines to modify the GIT microbiota and has written extensively in Australian and international textbooks and journals on these topics. He is on the Medical Nutrition Council of the American Society for Nutrition and is a fellow of both the American College of Nutrition and the Naturopaths and Herbalists Association of Australia. Dr. Horlack is currently the Senior Lecturer in Complementary and Alternative Medicines at the University of Tasmania's School of Medicine in Australia, where he coordinates the evidence-based complementary medicine programs. I can't wait to get started talking about one of my favorite topics, probiotics. Dr. Horlack, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thanks, Andrea. It's a pleasure to be here. I am super excited to talk about probiotics. It's something that we all have a fascination about, and I think a lot of confusion around as well. And I want to talk to you about species, but the first thing I want to do is just ground on a definition. How would you define probiotics? Probiotics are live microbes that, when administered in adequate amounts, confer a health benefit. That's probably the most concise, clear definition that we're using currently. And then when we start to look at what they are, are there certain species that are commonly used in the supplementation area? There are things we should be looking for? Yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely, and perhaps it's a matter of chance in some ways that the species that really dominate our, our supplements at this point are lactobacilli and bifidobacteria. Right. Those two genera make up the vast majority of, of the, the species that, that make up probiotic supplements at this time point. Now, this is changing and that, that I think in, in 10 years' time, we're going to have probiotics that are derived from Fecalobacterium, from Acromandia, from Roseburia, a whole range of other of gut species that we now know play very pivotal roles in the gut and arguably far greater roles than what indigenous lactobacilli do, for example. It's just a matter of time while we make that shift. And this has really got to do with, with technology. And, and also, as I said, the sort of chance that um, some of the work that Mechnikov did back in the early 1900s, he just happened to isolate lactobacilli primarily from fermented food. And that started the ball rolling on, on the importance of lactobacilli. And when we look at the nomenclature to use, like there's a lot of confusion around species and strains. Can you talk into that yeah, a little bit? For sure. And, and I think that you're spot on there in that that I think the you often read stuff and, and even authors in, in, in research articles get species and strain completely mm. confused. So it's not that surprising that clinicians get t um, a bit tied up around this too. But let's look, for example, at that, you know, the, the prototypical probiotic um, species was Lactobacillus 
acidophilus. But then after that, you'll generally have some sort of strain code, which could be LA5, LA14, NCFM, or all are three examples of, of the strain coding. And we, we now know from research in the last sort of essentially 25 to 30 years that that's, the strain details are immensely important in terms of determining, uh, I suppose, extrapolation from, from research studies. And, and the way that you can often think about this, think of E. coli. Is one species, but you've got the the Nissel 1917 strain that that has sort of gut anti-inflammatory properties, treats diarrhea, and then you've got the you know EO157 strain that causes bloody diarrhea, kidney failure, and death. They're, they're both right. the same species. They just have, but they're different strains and they have different genes turned off or on. Now, thankfully, when we're working with Lactobacilli or Bifidobacteria, we don't have such an extreme end of thing, but we certainly have have um, the, I suppose the extreme end we, we are working with is not functional, have no medicinal benefit, they sort of die when they transit to the stomach and small intestine, to the other extreme of being extremely therapeutic. And that really depends not on species, but on strains for for most applications that we're working with as clinicians. Just to ground on this, there's these buckets of species and within the species, there are these strains. And we might go to that realm of strain specificity when we're working with a patient with a certain condition. Definitely, because we know that those the, the characteristics that we want from probiotics um, and in order to, to facilitate them having a therapeutic effect or the chance of having a therapeutic effect are what we'd call strain-specific. So like gastric acid tolerance, bile salt tolerance. So will they survive transit to the stomach and mm. small intestine? That Not all, not all types of lactobacillus acidophilus, not all strains have those those characteristics, but some do. And the ones that do obviously have a chance of, of reaching the lower gut and, and interacting with, with our immune system um, and interacting with the microbiome in, in, in a different way than the ones that die in the upper gut. Talk a little bit more about that because that's a question I know that comes up a lot as we start to learn about how acidic the stomach should be, that there is this question of, well, what gets through there? So which are the strains that do get through the gastric acid? Lots. No <laughs> it's good. just not all. Not that's all. good. That's, that's the challenge. Lots, but and, not and all. Would, yeah. And I would say from 1992, there's a pretty pivotal paper published where they first isolated out what we now call lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. And the researchers on this paper were Golden and Gorbach, GG is where it came from. Mm. And they were the first ones, I think, who, who um, applied a much more scientific methodology about, about um, isolating and uh, doing initial testing on probiotic strains before doing further research. So they you know, got a healthy person's poo sample. They may have isolated, I think it was 100 and some lactobacilli strains from that healthy person's poo. Um, then they put them through an obstacle course. Which of these hundred strains could tolerate gastric acid? Which could tolerate bile salts? Which could adhere to the gut? Which produced a selectively acting antimicrobial compound? And which had good shelf life stability that they could live at, you know, 20 degrees Celsius, um, which I'm not, couldn't tell you what Fahrenheit that is, but 70 something Fahrenheit uh, without dying. And out of those hundred that they started with, there's one that ticked all the right boxes, wow. which they named after themselves GG, um, which and, and now is, is the best research probiotic on earth. And from, but from that time point, many probiotic researchers obviously noticed that and go, ah, okay, well, we shouldn't just randomly take some lactobacillus that we find. We should do this initial testing first to make sure that they've got the greatest chance of surviving and uh, through the upper gut and, and the greatest chance of having a therapeutic effect when people consume them. So most well-researched strains used in many probiotic supplements certainly meet the criteria of, of the, the basic criteria of survival through the upper gut. That's um, so you'd argue that, that some on the, the cheaper end of things don't right. necessarily have that data, data set because you can't say that all lactobacilli do or all bifidobacteria do. It, it, again, it's a strain-specific trait. But um, if the company's done their, their homework properly, those traits will be assumed, essentially. 
Yeah, I think it's it's such a good thing to know. And I think when we're looking at the left side of the matrix, what I call the story, it's pretty common to us these days that there are a number of things that would impact somebody having low microbial diversity from the get-go. Certainly um, what their mom passes down, even now we know more what dad might be involved with, whether they're born vaginally, breastfed, all of these factors, I think we know impact how we come into the world with that diversity. Is there anything else that you have found that's quite novel that impacts us from the get-go? I mean, I think you touched on the on the main ones, and I, and I I agree wholeheartedly the the import of that and the role that we as clinicians can play to alter that initial passing on and yes. initial seeding, and and I, and I really mean the, the research around breast milk and its capacity to um, almost work as a seeding and feeding. <laughs> tool that can even get around some of the stuff that we'd expect from from c-section i think is is pretty amazing um and perhaps wasn't known so well before and and you know we're flowing on from that too also the role of antibiotics around the birth process or that last trimester is huge you know and there obviously there's a time and place for them where they save lives that they need to be used but i think there there has to be a degree of caution um with some consideration of long-term consequences which i think has been missing um in, in conventional medicine practice we're more and more aware of it now, and I think we know that the antibiotics also become a triggering event throughout the lifespan, as well yeah. as other pharmaceuticals, antibiotics in our meat and our water, which you may not be as subject to as we are here in the States. I don't know how bad it is in Australia, but what other triggering events should we be thinking about in relation to low microbial diversity? I think you're, you're right. It's, it's proton pump inhibitor use. Oh, and yeah. chemotherapy, mm-hmm. radiotherapy, and antibiotics, I think, are the, the core ones. And as we're, there's more research coming out looking at, at pharmaceuticals and their impact on the microbiota every single month. So this will get, our list will undoubtedly expand from right. that. Um, and I think there's even some, I think people who are on, on fiber-restricted diets. Yes, the diets thinking about that. Kind of a range of plant foods, that can also be a triggering factor for, for loss of microbial diversity, uh, a lowering of levels of beneficial bacteria in the gut, and, and eventual extinction if they follow that dietary approach long enough. So I think we also need to be aware of that too. So there's a number of patients that I see um, further on in their health journey who have gone through some extreme dietary approaches and their microbiome has deteriorated the longer they've been on that dietary approach. So, um, and it wasn't necessarily in great state to begin with, but it's actually gotten worse from what they were doing in an attempt to get themselves better. Yeah, it's so interesting that you bring that up because we need the prebiotics to feed the probiotics and people who are eating diets that are low in fiber are missing those opportunities to feed the microbiome. And there's a lot of things we can do, whether it's probiotic foods or polyphenols, all the things we do to feed the good bacteria when absent from the diet deplete those stores as well. And like you, we see so many patients in our clinic that are depleting their diets because they're trying to get some control. These tend to be people with more severe GI issues, the IBS, IBD, undiagnosed IBD, constipation, diagnose leaky gut or a perception of leaky gut, but probiotics are used now more and more for other health concerns. Where's the research showing us that we can be turning to the gut for, let's say, brain health, but a whole bunch of other things as well? 
Yeah, it, it, this has been phenomenal. As, as someone that's been a probiotic researcher for nearly 20 years, we've really shifted from from that very much gut focus that it was back in the late 90s, early 2000s when I started, to you looking now at you know this, this great human research showing probiotics to be useful for the prevention of gestational diabetes, yes. prevention of postpartum obesity. Um, you know, the study that came out in, in 99 looking at, at probiotics to prevent eczema. And that was published in The Lancet. was groundbreaking at the time because it was the, probably the first well-done clinical trial showing probiotics were useful clearly outside that sort of gut realm. Uh, and that really did open up the door. You know, probiotics for anxiety, for depression, Alzheimer's disease, uh, food allergies, allergic rhinitis, obesity, type 2 diabetes. I mean, the list is, is, is ever growing and expanding. Um, and I think it's, it's just fantastic that we have this whole range of tools that I think are often underutilized and certainly uh, not utilized to, to the, their utmost, I'd say, by m many clinicians due to the lack of the, the fine knowledge around their use and, and the breadth of applications that probiotics actually have. I think sometimes we get really, clinicians get stuck going, ah, oh, I'll only use this for people who've got dysbiosis or I'll only use them post-atomotics rather than going, okay, no. We've got a whole range of tools, a whole new materia medica open to us as clinicians. Um, when you, and you look deep into that research, it's like, oh, I've got a whole new toolkit I can use that I wasn't aware of before. Yeah, I think we, there's more and more awareness that we have to go back to the gut for so many foundational issues. And especially, you know, for me as somebody who is in the realm of functional nutrition, we have to always think about where the food meets the physiology and it's in the gut. So we need that to be in optimal health and function. Let's get into the realm of mediators, what we do as clinicians. I know that you are a fan of strain specificity and finding the right strain for the job. And yeah. oftentimes I find we have to build diversity and get that fiber in and get like the environment or the terrain going. What's your take on that from a clinical perspective? How do you how do you kind of get in there and do the job? And I think you're, you're spot on that I, I do strain specific probiotics for certain applications and actions that I'm after. But if my if I come, if a patient comes to me with with a very um, ecosystem that's lacking diversity, lacking you know, levels of, of what we generally consider to be beneficial anti-inflammatory species mm -hmm. like bifidobacteria, Ackermann's, ifecalobacterium. Probiotics don't have a huge role there, in all honesty. In my, in my experience and based on the research that we have, it, it is really about diversifying the diet with, with broader ranges of plant foods. So we, we tend to get um, sometimes we think of fiber as fiber as fiber, and it's like, right. no, it yeah. comes in all different shapes yep. and sizes, which feeds different bacteria. So the, the wider variety of, of diversity of, of foods that we eat, plant foods, whole plant foods, the wider diversity of microbes that we have the capacity of feeding. And same with polyphenols. So you're going with you know purple carrots and yep. purple potatoes, and, and you're trying to get as much color as you can in much many polyphenol rich foods as possible because again you know 90 95 percent of ingested polyphenols reach the colon where they interact with the microbiota essentially they're, they're worked as food sources um so i think that's the other key aspect of, of diversifying their diet from a color perspective from a broad variety of foods and then i'll also also use select um prebiotics to have a much more targeted impact on mm -hmm. that ecosystem so if someone's low in bifidobacteria low in acromansia essentially i'll i'll use a prebiotic like uh fruct oligosaccharides or yep. uh, 
lactulose, which will specifically target those species, and their their populations will increase with their use, as well as as nurturing the broader ecosystem with with dietary approaches. And we mustn't forget lifestyle things too about exercise, adequate sleep, stress yes. reduction, all all of which we know that when out of balance negatively impacts the gut ecosystem as well. Yeah, there's some more recent research on sleep and how that impacts the microbiome, and I think it's great to see these studies being done, like we were talking about. Two more questions before I let you go onto your day. Start low, go slow tends to be my approach because I think a lot of people go too fast with strains that they don't know work for their system. What do you think about that? And how do you work with dosing? With probiotics, it really depends on the population that I'm working yes. with and that I recall in my... <laughs> I've been in a clinician for, for nearly 20 years, and in the earlier days, I didn't really have to go slow with, with probiotics and, and go with very tiny doses, but the population I work with now are, yes. are often on the extreme end of sensitivity who've tried lots of things before they get to, in to see me. Um, so I, I concur with that, and, and certainly in, in the realm of, of prebiotic dosing. Um, these days, pretty much all my patients are the, in the go low and go yes. slow camp that we start with very low doses and slowly build up. But it's it's amazing to see where we can get to even in some extremely sensitive patients with prebiotics with with patients um, and care around dosing and how much we can impact that ecosystem. Because um, I do lots of, of initial microbiome assessments and I do lots of follow-ups. We can actually see how populations are shifting. And, and I think for patients, it's wonderful for them to see too because it's like, okay, like sometimes they'll feel better too. And that's obviously the, the yes. thing we're really after. But it's nice for them. They want to see that objective change as that goes alongside the subjective changes in, in their quality of life and symptoms. Yeah, I love that. You know, it has to be bio-individual. We have to work with who we're talking to and see what their body responds yes. to. And the last question, and this is a biggie, but the whole topic is a biggie really but because I have such a passion about working with people with autoimmunity can we touch just real quickly on the interaction between probiotics and the use of probiotics and the immune cells and the immune function yeah and I think probiotics can play a pretty important role in autoimmune conditions mm -hmm. yeah and I think there's a few ways in which they can do so we, we know that the, the leaky gut perspective even, yes even, this, we can start there yep that an imbalanced ecosystem or something else, <laughs> many things can cause that initial gut leakiness. And then right. we can use certain probiotics to help speed up the uh, regeneration, restoration of the small bowel, for example. Um, and I think sometimes, uh, again, thinking clinically, that, that slow gut transit time and that reabsorption of compounds from the colon, because they've got you know, maybe it's 10 days for things to get through rather than 24 hours or 16 hours, using probiotics to speed that along can also be helpful. And then we have perhaps arguably more more direct effects of, of having direct anti-inflammatory effects in the system, and then even arguably indirect anti-inflammatory effects by altering the ecosystem. So if you have high levels of lipopolysaccharide-containing mm -hmm. bacteria in the gut, high levels of proteobacteria, um, bacteroidetes, but, but we certainly know proteobacteria have got far more potent pro-inflammatory pro endotoxin, that using the right probiotic can actually help reduce the, the load of endotoxin-containing bacteria in the gut, which then takes the, the level of inflammation away systemically. And, and I think really we're looking at what's driving inflammation in this patient. And there's probably a few things coming from the gut, from gut integrity, slow gut transit time, and um, a dysbiotic environment. And we can certainly use probiotics as part of our approach to help with all those areas, as well as directly impacting inflammation systemically via how they can interact with toll-like receptors, for example, um, and actually, you know, can interact with our, our, our immune system to increase the secretion of anti-inflammatory cytokines yes. and down-regulate the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Beautifully stated. 
Dr. Horlick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Hi, you're very welcome. I loved it. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The 15-Minute Matrix team includes music by my son, Gilbert Nakayama, and Carla Schaefer on sound production, along with Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook. You can visit us and hear more episodes at 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode, please go to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. We'll drop into your inbox with a short reminder that a new episode is ready for you. You also have an invitation to email us anytime, day or night. We want to know who you'd like to hear on the podcast and what you'd like to see mapped on the 15-Minute Matrix. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com.